Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. You're listening to the second part of our year-end series. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. Luke chapter 7 is where we are today, starting in verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited them saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is. She's a sinner. She's a sinner. I want to call our message this morning at the feet of Jesus. At the feet of Jesus. Can we put our hands together? You guys can, you can be seated. So glad you could be here this morning. Um, if you're new here, just want to welcome you. My name's Harrison. I'm the pastor here. Just honored uh, you could be with us on this special morning. Hey, can we just uh, give a round of applause to the worship team? <laughs> to Jesus, man, that's powerful. Uh, if you guys don't mind, just look at the person next to you, say hello, and welcome to church. So uh, I'm going to begin this message uh, with some confession time because I think that confession is good for the soul. You guys all right with that? Uh, so this week, uh, Christy and I, uh, we got some mail. And uh, in the spirit of Christmas, it wasn't necessarily like a gift under the tree kind of a thing as more of like a coal in the stockings kind of a thing. Uh, but Christy went out to get the mail. And when she came back into the house, she had a certain parcel and from the outside of uh, the piece of mail, you knew exactly what it was because it was from the police. Um, it was uh, the lovely photo radar. Anyone ever got a photo radar before? <laughs> a few people. Uh, and like, I- I'm, I'm going to say this because I can say this, and I know that my wife was thinking the exact same thing. But when she brought the envelope into the house, my, my-, my main thought was like, please, I hope it wasn't me. Like, please, Jesus, let that be her. (laughs) Now, inevitably, it doesn't really matter because we share our finances and our life. And so what's mine is hers and what's hers is mine. So it doesn't really matter, but it's the principle. I would just rather it be her than mine, than me. Uh, We opened the letter and uh, it was unfortunately me. It was me. Uh, Got a ticket. And the worst part about it was uh, it was in um, a 30 zone and... I was, we got a judgmental crowd this morning. I was going um, just like 42 to 43-ish in the range. To my defense, the way in which this school zone goes is that there's the school and then you turn left where I am and you'd think the school zone ends doesn't end for a little bit. Anyways, what's really frustrating to me is that it's called a speeding ticket. Anyone that's ever gone 44 kilometers an hour knows that 44 kilometers an hour is certainly not speeding. 
Nevertheless, got my ticket. It wasn't that much, like $120. It could be worse. Um, and so for me, I don't like to let these things linger. I want them out of my life immediately. So uh, I went online, because you can pay these things online, to pay my ticket the moment that I got it. Just want it out of my life. Now, I, I enjoy the convenience of paying the ticket online, but uh, there's a couple things about the online process that really, really frustrates me. Uh, number one is that they tried to make it an enjoyable experience. <laughs> really, really frustrating. Like they tell you to put your ticket number in, um, and then they want me to add it to my shopping cart. <laughs> As if I'm here for more than one thing. <laughs> and if that's not bad enough, when you, when you do the whole thing, you put it in your shopping cart, you proceed to check out like proceed to check out as if I'm on Amazon. Once you do the whole thing, it says, thank you for your purchase. And it really ticks me off because like when I go on Amazon, like I'm there for a good time, right? I'm there to buy something that I enjoy, that I know that I like. And so I like putting into the shopping cart. I like even paying for it. I like when they thank me and I'm excited. And so I think it's sick in the head that when I go to pay my ticket, they try to make it the exact same experience. Because you need to understand something. I'm not there because I want to be there. I'm only there because I think I have to be there. In fact, I know I have to be there because if I don't pay this ticket, they're going to come after me some way, somehow. And so please do not thank me for coming here. I'm not here because I want to be here. I'm just here because I have to be here. And when I was paying my ticket this week, I began to kind of wonder, uh, when it comes to, like, Jesus, I want to be real for a moment, when it comes to church, when it, when it comes to the, the, to the stuff that surrounds it, maybe it's prayer, maybe it's reading our Bible, I wonder how many of us kind of have that same attitude. Or say, well, I'm just here because I have to be here. I'm just here because I think it's the right thing to do. Like, I know, like, I, there's things in life I enjoy. This is just something I, I do because I think it's the right thing to do, because I, I have to do it. Now, where I want to go with this is we're in a series, and um, if you guys can just make some noise. Anyone here last week for, for part one? This is, this is a series that we do at church. We finish off our years, uh, our year, and every year we do this, where we finish in a faith series, and our series um, ends, and we take a year-end offering in faith. We give in faith. And one thing that I want us to understand, and we kind of talked about this last week, but I really feel like God's bringing us back to the same place, is that when it comes to giving, I want us to understand this. The life of a believer is marked with generosity. The mark of a believer is literally to give. And the reason that we give is because Jesus, our Savior, gave everything. He gave his life for us. In fact, when he came to earth, he gives us this mission statement. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, to, 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 to serve. Hold on. Twisted myself up here. The Son of Man did not come um, to be served, but to serve. I had it right the whole time. It was just sounding weird in my head. Thank you, Amy, for reading your Bible. The rest of you heathens, welcome to church. Um, <laughs> bring it back. Son of man. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not going to say it anymore. Jesus came to serve. That's the point of what we're trying to say. And so for us as believers, we follow his model. We follow his mode. And so the life of a believer is marked with generosity. But it's not just marked with this idea that we need to give. It's actually and supposed to be marked with this idea that giving actually brings us joy. And the reason it brings us joy is because we as, as believers have an opportunity to actually give a God who is so great, who is so worthy of all of our praise. We can actually give him something. And so the, the mark of a believer should be generosity. But the truth is, I think for a lot of us, when it comes to giving, and it's not just finances, it's giving of our time. It's giving of our, of our gifts and our abilities. I wonder how many of us have that mindset where maybe it's not pure love and devotion, but it's more obligation. Where this is just something that like I heard that I, I probably should be doing. I know I should probably go to church. You ever been there? It's been like two and a half months. I should probably get the family to church. It's been, it's been a while, yeah, sure, I can, I can volunteer once every 12 weeks, whatever you need from me. I, I, think I, I think I have to. And so what I want to do as we kind of in the midpoint of this series, before we, we, we really get to this idea of, of giving, I really want to continue to posture our hearts to why we give and to really the beauty of it. And I think where I want to go today is that if we have this feeling, it's like I don't really know if I want to, I don't know if I enjoy giving things to Jesus. I don't know if I enjoy coming to church. It's actually not a bad thing. It's more of a barometer, though, to let us know where our hearts are at. And so today, what I want this to be is a heart check to see where am I really? Because I believe that when we understand the message of Jesus, when we understand the grace of Jesus, it leads us to one place and one place only, and that is to the feet of Jesus. And so today, I want to read um, and study Luke chapter 7. It's the passage that we just read because I think it gives us a picture of devotion, but I also believe it gives us a picture of what obligation looks like. And so um, I'm just going to read it and it'll give us some context as we go along. Uh, Luke chapter 7, if you want to follow along, it's going to be on the screen behind us. If you have a Bible, you can follow as well. Verse 36, it says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped on them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So what I want to do is just kind of paint a picture of what's going on here. We learn, um, and we're going to learn more as we go along. We're at the house um, of a Pharisee, of a religious leader. His name is Simon. And again, we'll look more at his character in a moment. But the, the main thing that we see in verse 36 to 38 is we get this picture, and we get two central characters. We have Jesus, and we have this woman. Now, for, for those of you guys that do not know who Jesus is, and, and for the people that do know who Jesus is, what, what is being created and what is being seen in these verses is we're seeing a, a dichotomy. We are seeing a contrast between these two characters. On one end of the spectrum, we have Jesus. Now, Jesus, who I believe is the Lord of Lords, I believe he is the King of Kings. I believe he is the first, he is the last, he is the one who was and is and is to come. I believe that he is the Son of God, literally God in the flesh. He is goodness, he is mercy, he is grace, he is truth personified. And I believe that in the spiritual. 
Now, in this moment, even in the natural, people saw things when it came to Jesus. They were seeing miracles. They were seeing grace. They were seeing love. And so we have this one character, Jesus. We have this saint. Then Luke, he gives us another character, a woman. And when we learn very sparse details other than one thing and one thing only is that she lived a sinful life. We have a woman who lived a sinful life. So sinful, in fact, that her identity is literally tied to that word. Now, when Luke says this, this word sinner, he's not saying it in the sense that you and I are all sinners because we are. What he's trying to let us know is that the sin that this woman committed or did was a public sin, meaning everyone knew about it. And so most commentators, most scholars will tell you that they believe that more than likely she was a prostitute. She was involved in, in, in the sex trade. And everyone there knows it. That's who she is. She's a sinner. And so we get this picture, we get this spectrum, we get this dichotomy in these three verses. On one end of the spectrum, we have Jesus the saint. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have this woman, the sinner. And where we're going and where our minds are supposed to lead us as we read this story is to say, hey, these things don't really match up together. These things don't really jive. One of these things is not like the other. And for a lot of us, I think when we have this idea of God, holy God or a holy deity, there's this idea that, man, if there is a God, if there was someone that is perfect, holy, I am not that. And so when it comes to so many of us, when we think about how we would face a God or how we would interact with a God, for a lot of us, we kind of crumble back in shame. Because it's like, I don't feel worthy. And in this moment, Luke is trying to paint us a picture of someone who is worthy and someone who is unworthy, yet fate, chance has brought them together in the same place at the same time. And what we see in this moment is not what we think we would see. We do not see the saint rejecting the sinner. Instead, all we see is a woman coming over to Jesus, and instead of being rejected in the presence of all of these people, she is accepted. And she is accepted to the point where she is overcome with emotion. And the Bible says that she begins to weep. Now, I know for a lot of us, I would say all of us in this room, unless there's a robot sitting somewhere, all of us have cried at some point. I think many of us have wept, but weeping is different than crying. You see, crying is emotional. I believe that weeping is spiritual because when you weep, there is something that is happening inside of you where everything on the inside, whether you want it to or not, is coming out. And the reason she is weeping, I believe, as I understand this story, is because as she walks into this room and she's surrounded by all of these religious people, these people that for their whole entire lives had looked down on her. She walks in and she goes and she sees Jesus and instead of rejection, he's there and his arms are open wide. And I believe in this moment she has a spiritual experience because she's experiencing something that she didn't expect. Because one thing is not like the other. She's in a room, she's in a place where she does not belong. Have you guys ever been in a place where you just feel like you don't belong? where you stick out, where everyone's kind of watching you. This was the place. Can, can I tell you guys a funny story? I was, um, Josh and Kim are in the building today. Um, they got married in 2020. It wasn't that much fun, uh, COVID. 
So they, uh, they got married again in 2021, just like party. They've been married the whole time. Um, and so uh, they graced me with an invitation to their party. And so uh, they said, dress up, because we're dressing up. I said, okay. And so this was in the summertime. I got dressed up. I put a blazer on. I put um, some nice pants on. I was looking good. My wife was looking good. And so we got into our car, headed to Mournville. Because if you guys don't know, ain't no party like a Mournville. <laughs> and as we're driving to Mournville, um, I'm driving in my car, and I'm kind of in uncomfortable clothes, but I feel a certain sense of comfort. And I'm like, why do I feel so comfortable? And I look down at my feet, and I realize that I had put on my Nike slides. If you guys don't know what Nike slides are, they're sandals. And I have this, I have this habit in the summertime of just wearing sandals all the time. So like muscle memory, I got my blazer, I got party up here. Our business up here, I guess. And then I accidentally stuck um, sandals on. And we were halfway to Mournville. There was no going back at that time. So I showed up to, to Josh and Kim's celebration with a blazer and nice clothes, but flip-flops. And I'll let you guys know, I felt like kind of an idiot. And so the entire time, like, you know, lots of church people, I'm explaining myself. They're like, Harrison, you do love Nike. I'm like, yeah. Um, I do. Everyone else that doesn't know me, I'm like, man, these guys must think I'm an idiot <laughs> wearing slip-ons. But I just, I just felt like I didn't fit in for a set. You guys ever feel that before? Embarrassment, shame, whatever it may be. That's what this woman is feeling in this moment. It's shame. It's embarrassment. It's I don't belong here. And yet when Jesus makes her feel like she belongs, she's overcome with emotion. Maybe today you're in this room and you've heard about Jesus before in some passing way. And you're like, man, I don't know if I would belong with someone like that. Maybe you walked into this place today wondering, do I belong here? But I'm here to tell you what happened in Luke chapter 7 is happening here today. You are welcome in this place. The Father is here. Jesus is here. His arms are open wide. And he's saying, come home. You're welcome. Now, the question we must ask ourselves is this. Why? When it comes to God, why when it comes to Jesus do we feel this way? Why is there that, that gap? Why is there that sense of, of worthiness and, and I'm unworthy? Well, Hebrews chapter 4 kind of explains it to us in verse 13. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him of, to, of him to whom we must give account. So what Hebrews chapter 4 is saying, he's saying when it comes to God, God knows everything. God knows everything. That's kind of a sobering picture because I know a lot of us put on a front, like they work pretty good. Like, I'm pretty good. Like, have you seen my Instagram, my bio? Got a Bible verse in there. I'm pretty like socially justice kind of, I, 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 I'm pretty good. But at the end of the day, I think we all know this to be true, that when it comes to God, if there is a God that is omnipresent, all-knowing, knows every single part of me, there are parts of me that I am ashamed of. Every single one of us in this room has places deep within us, some deeper than others that we are ashamed of, that if anyone knew, what would they think of me? Well, the Bible lets us know that everything that is hidden is plain in God's sight. 
And actually, one day, all of those things we must give an account for to God. And so that is why for so many of us, we shrink with shame when we think of coming into the presence of God. Because God knows who I am fully and thoroughly. Every part of me, the part that if anyone found out, I would be ashamed. He knows that part. Now, in the next verse, I think it's going to say, therefore, have fun in hell. (laughs) Since he knows every part of me. Verse 14, it says, therefore... You can say, but since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. This is what he's saying. He's painting a picture. There is this God that is holy and you are not holy. And the only way to come into his presence is to be holy. But because you are not holy, you literally cannot come into his presence. You need someone else to come there and mediate on your behalf. Guess what? Jesus is that person. Jesus is that mediator. The Bible says he's a great high priest who is there. Literally like a lawyer. He's, he's arguing your case. Yeah, they're messed up. They've done some bad things. But guess what? They're in me. That's why Romans 8 verse 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in Jesus, get this, every sinner is a saint. In Jesus, every sinner is a saint. In Christ, I'm free, I'm saved, I'm forgiven. So verse 16, it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, in Luke chapter 7, I believe that this woman has met Jesus before. This is not the first experience, but the second. And so there is something that happened in the first experience that let her know that Jesus was different. And so what we are experiencing here in Luke chapter 7 is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 played out. She's coming boldly to Jesus, boldly to him. Because I want us to understand this. When we understand the chasm, when we understand that there is a gap between us and God, that I am not good enough, but Jesus is good enough, but Jesus came to save me. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That which is unworthy has now become worthy. When I understand that, something inside me changes. When I understand the grace of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, there is one response and one response only, and it is to worship. If you take it notes, you can put it like this. Worship is our response. Like Harrison, how do I even respond to news like that, that I have been saved, that I have been set free, that that which is worthy, unworthy is now made worthy? It's, it's simple. I worship. Worship is my response. I want us to understand this. The best way and the only way to worship God fully is to understand the gap between me and God. The more I think I'm closer to God, the harder it is to worship. The better I think I am, the harder it is to worship. Gaps create worship. You want to know one of the reasons that we worship celebrities? It's because of the gap. Right? Well, that person has so much more followers than I do. That person has so much more money than I do. That person is so much more famous than I do. And so for us as mere mortals... When we begin to recognize the gap, what happens? We begin to worship. You know, it's funny, like I look at all these people screaming when the Biebs comes out of a car. And I think to myself, what idiots. 
But I'm going to be honest with you guys. If I saw Tiger Woods, come on, somebody. Like, if Tiger rolled up on the scene, like, hello, Mr. Woods. My name is Harrison. I'm your biggest fan. My church prays for you every single week. It's because I recognize the gap. He's the greatest athlete of all time. And I'm just me trying to crush Sandpiper. <laughs> you see, the issue is this, because all of us worship. We just worship the wrong things. And the reason we worship the wrong things is because we worship the wrong gaps. Money is not a gap to be worshipped. Whether someone has a lot or a little does not make them better than you. Followers on Instagram is not a gap to be worshipped. Fame is not a gap to be worshipped. I'm going to tell you something. This, this, this two-foot stage, because churches do this sometimes, is not a gap to be worshipped. I'm not above you. The people on this stage are not above you. There is one gap and one gap only that is worthy of worship, and that is the chasm that exists between me and God, holy and unholy. <laughs> And when I understand the gap, something inside of me fundamentally shifts. The problem with religion is that religion closes the gap. And it makes me think that I am better than I am. But the gap must be big because then our worship increases. I want us to understand this. As a church, we exist for one thing primarily. Some of you are saying like evangelism, community. Those things are good. Community is great. Evangelism is great. But guess what? Our primary function as a church is one thing and one thing only. We exist to worship. That is the primary function of why we come together. We come together to worship a holy God. Some of you are saying, well, Harrison, what about evangelism? What about community? Understand this. Our community is only as strong as our worship. The, the reason that we commune together in church is because we worship the same God. That's what binds us together. Because if we do not have him, one thing we find out is that we're very, very different. Some people are very, very annoying. What binds us together, though, is the commonality that we worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what the Bible, like we, the blood of Jesus, right? It's kind of old school, like brother, sister. But the reason the early church called each other brother and sister was not even necessarily because they loved each other in that way. It is because what bound them together was that they were in the same family that worshiped the same Jesus. Our primary function as a church is to worship. Worship is our response to understanding the goodness of God. Listen, evangelism, evangelism is what we do, proclaiming the message. I'll tell you this, the message that we proclaim will only be as good as our worship. Why? Because no one cares about something you don't care about. Some of us are like, I can't understand why my family won't come to church. It's because you barely want to be here. I don't know why they don't worship. You don't worship. I don't, I don't know why my coworkers have no clue that I'm a Christian. It's because your life does not revolve around worship when it is supposed to. Because when we worship God, everything inside of us changes. You can, you can write it like this. My worship is a reflection of my adoration. My worship is a reflection of my adoration. As much as I adore Jesus will be the level that I can worship him. And when we worship Jesus, here's what I want us to understand. There's a twofold response. There's two ways to worship. You're saying, Harrison, how do I worship? How do I get better? Number one, understand the goodness of Jesus. Understand the gap. 
and then realize there's two ways to worship. There's planned worship, then there's spontaneous worship. Taking notes, planned worship, spontaneous worship. Let me show you planned worship. Luke chapter 7, again, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She learned where Jesus was, so she came there with perfume. This was intentional. The reason she went there literally was to go and anoint Jesus. I am there to give Jesus that which he is worthy of. I'm here to pour this perfume. You need to understand this is expensive perfume. This is perhaps the best thing that she owns. And so as she's thinking about Jesus, thinking about how I can worship him, she says, I'm going to find the very best thing that I have. And I'm going to bring it to Jesus. Now some of you say, man, that's kind of expensive. Couldn't, couldn't she just have used like some olive oil or some water to, to wash his feet? Why did she need perfume? Because at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't need anything. You guys heard that? God doesn't need anything. That's very true. God does not need anything. There's literally nothing that we as mere mortals can give God. But guess what? He may not need anything, but he's worthy of everything. And so I don't worship God based on need. I, ba- I worship God based on worthiness. Because he's worthy of it all. I give him my all. She says, what can I give Jesus? I'm going to give him my best. And so when she came to the place, when she came to the house of Simon, she came there with the intention, I'm here to worship. Listen, how could our lives change if when we entered into holy moments, whether it be individually or whether it be corporately at church, what if we came to church and we began to say, I am here to worship? A lot of us, it's the opposite. I'm here to receive. Hope the pastor's got a word for me today. Hope they play my favorite song today. But what if we say, man, I'm here to worship Jesus today. No matter what I feel, Jesus is still worthy. And so what that lets me know is that, that worship isn't about lights. It's not about feelings. It's not about mood. It's only about worthiness. And when I understand that Jesus is worthy, it means I'm going to give him something, not based on what I feel, but based on the fact that he is worthy and worthy alone. That's planned worship. Can I tell you something? Tithe. We talked a little bit last week. Tithing is planned worship. What's tithing? Tithing is is giving a percentage, the first 10% of your income, to Jesus. It's a planned worship. And it's planned in this. It's not based on how much I make or how little I make. It's not based on how I feel, how I don't feel, if it was a good day, bad day, good year, bad day, bad year. It's based on worthiness. I'm going to give him my first. I'm going to give him my best. It's a planned worship. You guys understanding that? What if we begin to plan worship? In my individual time, when I pick up my Bible, Jesus, I'm here to worship. I'm here to give you praise. I'm here to give you worship. And I promise you, something inside of us will shift. Something inside of us will change. My worship is a reflection of my adoration. Number one, planned worship. Here's number two, spontaneous. I love this. It says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And this is spontaneous. It was not planned. It was not pre-produced. She's overcome with emotion. She's weeping. But I love this thought. I love this thought. She came to Jesus with her absolute best. She brought her best perfume. When she gets there, 
she realizes, although I brought my best, I still want to give him more. What a thought. We plan out our best, but when we receive, we respond to the goodness of Jesus. I want to give him more. As the Bible says, she begins to wipe his hair with her, with her uh, wipe his feet with her hair. She's crying. Just this, this ultimate act of devotion. I don't believe she came there to use her hair as a dishcloth. But in the moment, she's like, what more can I give the one who is worthy of it all? Spontaneous worship. Now, some of us are saying, well, which one is better, planned or, or spontaneous? It's not about ranking them. It's about learning to respond to both of them. Because planned worship and, and spontaneous worship require the same thing. Obedience. Planned worship is say, I'm here to worship no matter what I feel. That takes obedience. I'm here to give no matter what I feel. That takes obedience. Spontaneous worship is different, but it also requires obedience because Jesus is calling me to do something. Maybe I'm, I'm in church. Maybe during worship for the very first time, it's like, I feel like I should lift my hands. To respond to that is spontaneous, but it requires obedience. You see, the, the beauty, I, I love the offering that we take in a few weeks because it's, 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 it's an above and beyond offering. What that means is there's no set amount. It's just, Jesus, what are you calling me to give? And what I've loved in the moments that we've taken this, this offering over time, we've heard stories where it's like, man, I had a planned amount, but then something happened in the moment, and Jesus called me to give more. That takes obedience. That takes obedience to say, Jesus, you're worthy of it all. And so in this moment, the woman gives both planned and spontaneous uh, worship. Then the story continues, Luke chapter 7. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, what kind of a woman she is. She's a sinner. Jesus answered, I love this part, because it said he thought to himself, meaning he was just thinking, he wasn't saying anything. Jesus answered, Simon, I got something to tell you. He's like, me? I didn't say anything. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, we're going to look at his response in a second that Jesus has, but I want us to understand Simon. Who Simon was, Simon was a Pharisee. And what we see with, with Simon the Pharisee is that we see a spirit of religion. And religion in and of itself is not a bad thing. When I talk about a spirit of religion, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to get across is there's this idea that can happen for people that as they try to serve God, they begin to lose focus. They begin to lose that gap that exists between them and God. Because the more we serve him, there's something inside of us that says, I think I'm kind of like God. I think I'm good like that. And what happens is the moment you lose that gap, what happens is a spirit of religiosity. And a spirit of religiosity says this, I'm here based on what I have done. And if I'm here based on what I have done, I will always look at other people that I perceive to have done less than me, and I will look upon them with judgment. And so what we see in Simon in this moment is a spirit of religion. He says, I kind of got my life together. If Jesus knew who this person was, if Jesus knew who that sinner was, he would never touch her. He wouldn't go close to her. You see, this, the, the spirit of religion, which says, I am here based on what I have done, is contrasted with the woman who is there with the spirit of devotion. And a spirit of devotion, you can, you can write it like this, says, I'm here not because of what have I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. 
Religion says I'm here because of me. Devotion says I'm here because of Jesus. It's only because of Jesus. And maybe you're saying to yourself, Harrison, how do I check my heart? How do I know if I'm leaning towards, uh, towards religiosity or if I'm living with pure devotion for Jesus? I think one of the best ways to understand yourself is not to, to try and dig deeper, but just look, how do I view other people? Because the way that you view other people will be a direct result of how you view yourself. And if I'm always looking down at other people, this woman is unclean, she's dirty, she's filthy. I'm not living in grace, I'm living in religion. And now there's two guarantees for everyone in this room today. Number one, you guys have all experienced this before. You've experienced people in church that they feel like they're better than other people. And for a lot of us, it's like, man, that's why I can't stand organized religion. That's why I can't stand church because of the, the hypocritical people. And so guarantee number one, especially if you've been in church for a long time, you've experienced those people. But here's guarantee number two. You've also been that person. All of us have been that person that looks down on other people, that says, how could they do that? Who do they think they are? You see, a religious spirit blinds us to the beauty of who Jesus is, and a religious spirit blinds us to the gap that exists between us and God. And so Jesus, answering Simon's, Simon's thoughts, he says, Simon, he says, two people, begins to tell a story owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who has a bigger debt. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So Jesus paints this picture. There's two debts. One is greater than the other. And he says, who will love them more? Logical sense, the one with the greater debt. Verse 44, Jesus turned toward the woman. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, and there are many, have been forgiven. As her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. You want to know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, her devotion to me, her worship to me is based on her understanding of the depths of her sinfulness. I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again. The moment that we find that we can fully worship God is not when we live under the delusion of perfection, but is when we begin to understand the scandal of grace. That I live in the gap only because of Jesus. And so it's only when I understand my sinfulness that I will be able to worship Jesus fully. Now, as we look at this story, does it, like, does it mean I need to sin more? Because what he's saying that this woman is better because she's sinned more than the Pharisee, that's not what he's trying to say. Because as we look at this story, it is not for us to look at the person with 500 and the person with 50 and say, where do I fall in the spectrum? No, 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 no. What we are supposed to do when we understand that parable is that we are the ones with 500, with 500 owed. We are the ones, every single one of us has a debt that we could not pay, that Jesus paid. 
And if I do not understand my true condition, I'll never be able to understand Jesus fully. Why? Because when gratitude shrinks, entitlement grows. The moment I lose that place of grace, I have one place to go and it's to entitlement. And what entitlement says is I'm here because of something that I have done. But the place of grace to, to live with the understanding of the gap is to say I'm fully aware of my downfalls. I'm fully aware of my humanity, my sinfulness, but I'm here because of the grace of Jesus. First Timothy chapter one, I love what Paul says. And Paul, he's a pastor, he's a church planter. When you read the Bible, you'd think he has his life together. He says this. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. What he means, I'm saying it for me, but we can all say this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You want to worship? Don't think of prostitutes. Think of yourself. Don't think of the people down the road. Think of yourself. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Full band, come up here. We're going to worship. Christ Jesus came down into the world to save me. Someone shout me. A sinner of whom I am the worst. Christ Jesus came to save me. The place of grace is to understand the gap that exists between me and God. And when I understand the gap that exists between me and God, I have one response and one response only, and it's to worship. It's to praise. Tim Keller, I think he sums it up beautifully. He says, if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we're misreading it. We are missing its central message. We are reading and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us, critiques us, yet encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. So I go on this journey with Jesus where I see who I truly am. And it makes me feel kind of bad because I'm not worthy, I'm not worth it, but then I feel a whole lot better when I understand Jesus died for me. The Bible says while we were still in sin, Jesus died for me. And when I understand who I truly am, I cannot wait to give. I can't wait to give Jesus everything. The gap brings me to one place and one place only, and it's the feet of Jesus. Can we just stand for a second, church? You see, in a couple of weeks, we're going to take our year-end offering, and it's going to be a moment of worship. And I want to encourage us to ask ourselves, Jesus, what are you calling me to give? And we can respond in obedience. And in the moment, we can respond to the spontaneous, the spontaneous that we feel. But right now, before that, because that's, that's two weeks away, we don't need to wait two weeks to worship. I want us to worship one more time with the understanding of the goodness of Jesus, with the understanding that he has bridged the gap. If you're here today and you never understood all that Jesus has done to you, I'm here to tell you in the name of Jesus, you are not here by accident. You are not here by mistake. You are here to understand the grace and the goodness of Jesus. Come on. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We hope that message encouraged and inspired you. If you want more information, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, head over to kingdomchurch.ca. We'd love to connect with you. Until next time, take care.